in Revelation 14 tonight. If you're new with us on Wednesday night, we are moving verse by verse through the book of Revelation. We are in the 14th of 22 chapters, and we are dealing with a, a chapter that is packed with stuff. Um, but it is captured in harvest imagery. So if you take a look behind me, you'll see the title is The Harvest. Um, Harvest imagery is all throughout our Bibles because the Bible was written in what we would call an agrarian society, a society very much steeped in farming, crops, dependence on rain, uh, cattle, you name it. And so within harvest imagery, in the idea of sowing and reaping, of planting things and harvesting, the Bible uses a lot of what we would call metaphors or pictures to drive points home about spiritual truth. In Galatians 6, 7, Paul says, Don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That's harvest language. Jesus gave a parable known as the parable of the sower, or sometimes we call it the parable of the soils. He said, The seed is thrown on different soils, and the condition of the soil determines the productivity of the crop. If you remember that story, only one in four soils was productive. And it produced a crop and the rest did not. And so we can see this all over our Bibles. And we're going to see this tonight as we jump back into the book of Revelation. We're picking it up at Revelation 14, 1. And we're going to see a familiar group only mentioned twice in the Bible, the 144,000 this is verse 1. It says, I looked and behold the Lamb, that's Jesus, was standing on Mount Zion. We've talked about Mount Zion in 2 Samuel. We'll dig that out a little bit in a second. And with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, in Revelation 13, last time we were together, we did a message called the Mark of the Beast. And we examined and, and tried to figure out what this famous mark may be. And we talked about microchips and we talked about all these ideas of what the mark could be. But in the end, we talked about the fact that it really depicts who you belong to. In Jewish thought, the word of God was to be written on your hand and your forehead. It represented what was in your mind and what you were up to, what your actions spoke of. And they, they really reflect who you belong to. We're not saved by works, but works will show what kingdom we belong to. Works will show the true root. We say that grace is the root and good works are the fruit. You can't, you can't reverse those. You are saved by grace, that's the root. Good works are the fruit from the root. And that's how you can tell if someone's saved. James, who was from the show me state in the book of James, said, don't just tell me about your faith. Show me. Because on a horizontal plane, I can't see the Holy Spirit in you. I can't see if you're born again. But I can know who you belong to by your works. That's a pretty good test. Now, some people can fool us at least some of the time. But you can't fool God. And so people in Revelation 13 were having to face this mark that they would receive either on their hand or their forehead. And if they took the mark, they were in deep trouble. And so um, we'll get to that in a moment. 
But here's the 144,000. And uh, in chapter seven, if you flip back there for a second, Revelation seven, we see the only other description of the 144,000. They are sealed before the day of the Lord commences. Just take a peek at Revelation seven, verse three. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So there's no secret about the who the 144,000 are. And they get sealed. And then in verses 9 through 17, there's this great uh, multitude that appears in heaven. They begin to praise God. And if you just uh, take a peek at Revelation 8.1, then there's the breaking of the seventh seal. There's an anticipatory silence in heaven for about the space of a half an hour. And then judgment begins to fall. In verse 5, Revelation 8, the angel took the censer. He had filled it with fire, the fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And then you're going to have the trumpet judgments that follow right there. In Revelation 14, if you flip back there, the same 144,000 appear only two times in the entire Bible are they described this way. And they have this mark on their foreheads. Notice it is the name of the Father, Revelation 14.1. It is the name of Jesus and the name of the Father. It is a sign of who you belong to. It is an indication of a seal. Last week we said, whatever the mark of the beast is, it really means you have decided to belong to him instead of belonging to God. You've decided to belong to the world system instead of the kingdom of God. And that mark is an identifier of who you belong to. In the ancient world, slaves were actually marked on the forehead or the hand because typically those areas of your body could not be covered by clothing. And so it would, you, you could literally have a branding on your forehead or on your hand. And if you were a fugitive slave, they could even brand you as a fugitive. And so this seems to be the symbolism that is here. This group of 144,000, they are standing. It says, behold, there's the lamb and they're standing on Mount Zion. It is interesting that Jesus is described as a lamb. And it says, behold, the lamb. In John 129, we are told that John the Baptist said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1.35 through 37, it says, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Uh, throughout Scripture, and especially in the book of Revelation, it says these words. Revelation 7.10 says, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7.14 says, They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7.17 says, The Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd. It's interesting that this Lamb, in almost a reverse image, is actually the shepherd. Usually lambs follow, right? In this case, it's flipped around, and the Lamb is actually the shepherd. But he's depicted as a Lamb because of his sacrificial work. Because he is... Uh, symbolized in the Passover when the lamb was killed on what we know as um, lamb uh, or Good Friday and leading into, of course, or on the day of Passover. 
They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. That's Revelation 12, 11. And Revelation 13, 8, which is right near where we are in our Bible, says, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. Revelation 13, 8. So the world is going to worship the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, except for those whose names are recorded in heaven. They are written, if you will, in the blood of the Lamb. And so you either are written in the Lamb's book of life or you have the mark of the beast. And you can think of this in symbolic terms as well because it is all about what you are marked by. And so notice this group of 144,000, they have Jesus' name. They have the name of the Father written on their foreheads. And there they are. They're standing on Mount Zion. In Hebrews 12.22, Mount Zion is uh, compared to the heavenly Jerusalem. And it is a, it's possible that it is a symbol for uh, p- perhaps heaven. We don't know for sure. But Mount Zion is a physical location. In fact, we've identified it as the Temple Mount as we've done our studies. And I don't know... Um, what the right answer here is to the exact location of Mount Zion. It could be that they're in heaven. It may not be. But here's what I like to think about as I consider this mark. The world who takes the mark of the beast is going to be marked with something that is 666. The church is marked with 777. Amen? 666 is the mark of the beast or the number of man always falling short of perfection. 777 is the mark of God or the mark of the Trinity. I wouldn't get freaked out, by the way, if you order food and it comes to $6.66. This is more about who you belong to. Are you born again of the Holy Spirit? Do you belong to God or not? That's really the question that we all have to wrestle with. Who do we belong to? What do you believe? I did a memorial service for a 19-year-old young man this this last week, and it's a pretty emotional service. And um, ultimately, as we tried to encourage one another in that service, we said these words. It really comes down to what you believe or in whom you believe. Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, if there wasn't a heaven, I would have told you. Isn't that cool? Jesus said, if there was no heaven, I would have told you. And it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, there is a heaven. And Field of Dreams told us there's a heaven. So if you've ever seen that movie before, you already know the answer, right? And I heard a voice from heaven, Revelation 14, 2, like the sound of many waters. That's powerful. Think of like Niagara Falls. And like the sound of, sound of loud thunder, Revelation 14, 2. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists. So you have different images, many waters, loud thunder, both powerful sounds. And here there's the sound of harpists, which in the modern uh, vernacular would be the sound of guitars. So um, there were stringed instruments back in the day. David played a stringed instrument. He was the, known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so this, this voice, if you look, the voice from heaven, verse 2, is a combination of many waters, loud thunder, 
and guitars. I don't know how you uh, conclude what that really sounds like, although my grandmother would say that was the sound of our garage band back in the day. Years ago, we had a two-story house, and I was learning to play drums up in my bedroom, and my grandmother would always sit in a rocking chair downstairs. And so I would do what I thought was pretty well on the drums, and I would co come downstairs, and my grandma would say, what's the matter with you? All I hear is the ba-boom, the ba-boom, ba-boom. Play something. I was like, Grandma, I was playing something. Ah, oh, it's just the ba-boom, the ba-boom. Anyway. Then my stepbrother picked up the electric guitar and it was a cacophony of sounds that my grandmother still did not appreciate. Anyway, Revelation 15, 2, just look ahead for a second. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, something like a red sea, those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image, from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And then they begin to laud God or praise God. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, thou King of the nations. So you can see... Um, in Revelation 7 and 14, a similar um, parallel. Think with me for a second. In Revelation 7, the 144,000 are sealed, and then you have this, this uh, group that appears in heaven out of the great tribulation, and then they celebrate, they have palm branches in their hand, and then the wrath of God comes on the unbelieving world. In Revelation uh, 14... So 7 and 14, parallel tracks. You have the 144,000 again. You have them singing to God, celebrating before God. And what you're going to see is after the picture of them, you're going to see the judgment of the earth. Those who uh, take the mark are going to be judged. They're going to drink the wine of the wrath of God. And then you move into Revelation 15 and this group is singing uh, the song of Moses. And so... Here's how this works. Following the sealing of the 144,000 in chapter 7 comes the trumpets. Following the sealing of the 144,000 in chapter 14 comes the bowls in chapters 15 and 16. You may not have any interest in this, but some of you are interested in how this lays out. And so what you may have is very similar timing on these things. First, the, the people in heaven, the saved the, the ones who are with the Lord and then the judgment comes and the saved are celebrating with the Lord. Revelation 14, 3, they sang a new song before the throne and before the, the four living creatures and the elders, 14, 3. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now, I am not quite sure why others can't learn the song. I don't know if it's because it's difficult in structure or if it's only for them, uh, being purchased from the earth should not be unique to the 144,000 because every Christian has been purchased, redeemed, that's the idea of purchase, from the slave market of sin, bought uh, by the blood of the Lamb. So this is a song unique to them. 
Uh, it could be that this represents Jewish people who have come to know Jesus during the Great Tribulation. Their eyes have been opened, so it's a unique song to them. I don't know exactly all of the, uh, uh, the, the nuances there, but I will say this. Um, what's your song? Here's a question. Is your song lately sad, mad, lonely? Have you been listening to country and western songs lately? Did you lose your girlfriend and your dog? And <laughs> Are you singing the same old song? Are you stuck in the same old rut? Look, sometimes it's, it's nice to reminisce. Some old songs that I listen to, you know, from the good decades, like the 80s, for example. Can I get a witness? I can't believe the 80s are considered oldies now. I'm like, no, that hasn't really happened to me, has it? And it's funny how things come full circle because a lot of the young people now like music from the 70s and 80s. Huh? It was real music back then. Anyway. But sometimes a song will take me back to a time in my life and it could be very positive or not so good at all. And uh, anyway, I waited patiently for the Lord, David wrote in Psalm 40, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Psalm 144, 7 through 10 says, Stretch forth your hand on high. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters, out of the hand of aliens, whose mouths speak deceit, whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to thee, O God. Upon a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to thee, who does give salvation to kings, who does rescue David, his servant, from the evil sword. Psalm 144, 7 through 10. Jesus gives me songs in the night. Um, I've learned that what I put into my head does really matter. Have you ever uh, gone back and listened to a song that you liked maybe back in the day, maybe in your BC days, and then you actually listen to the lyrics of that song and you're like, ooh, wow. And something you used to rock out to in your car now your children are in the back seat and you say, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> See no evil. Speak of no evil. I hear no evil. <laughs> right? Wow. What has captured your heart? Years ago, Hillsong sang a song in the morning and in the evening, I can't stop praising your name. Nothing comes close to praise. Nothing. You know, sometimes I'll have something spiritual on the radio, like a sermon, and I'll do the old channel surfing thing because I'm a guy. All right, so what, I wonder what's on over here. And 90% of the time, it's just some talking head speaking nonsense. And I'm like, why did I even change the channel? If you've changed the channel lately in your life, may I encourage you to get back to the things of God. These, the 144,000, verse 4, are the ones who have not been defiled with women. 
Uh, by the way, I think that this is more symbolic of purity because uh, marriage is blessed by God. For they have kept themselves chaste. The idea is of being a virgin, but here it's, it's symbolic of spiritual chastity. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. There's some of our uh, preterist friends believe that this is evidence that we're dealing with Jerusalem in the first century because they believe that the first fruits are the early church, which was Jewish. But the first fruits um, could be here a group of Jewish people who have their eyes opened in the last days. Uh, if you're interested about this first fruits imagery, you could take a look at James 1, verse 1, which is written to the 12 tribes that are dispersed abroad. And then James 1.18 says these words. In the exercise of his will, God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. It's possible that this 144,000 is the first fruits of other Jewish people who will be saved during this time. And uh, they've been purchased from among men. They are first fruits. And that imagery is guaranteeing the rest of the harvest. It's harvest imagery to God and to the Lamb. One final thing that you'll see about this description of this group, there's no lie, literally no guile. Jesus said of Nathaniel, here is an uh, individual in whom there is no guile. Uh, no guile or no lie was found in their mouth, and they are blameless. By the way, in the Bible, blameless does not mean perfect. It means you are a person who's consistently trying to live out your faith. For example, in the New Testament, it says an elder is to be blameless. It means that there's no open accusation that can stick against him where he is out there living a contradictory lifestyle to who he claims to be. And so now we're going to move in verses 6 through 13 to a second group. And this probably would land itself, I believe, during the second three and a half years, uh, taking us right up to the day of the Lord. And here's what we've got. So we're moving into verse 6. I saw another angel. The word for angel is angelos could be translated a messenger, flying in mid-heaven. If you have an NIV, it says mid-air. ESV says directly overhead. Um, the mid-heaven is the point in the sky where the sun reaches its apex. Having an eternal gospel, or the eternal gospel, New King James, to preach to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. The gospel, verse 6, is for everyone. It is not limited in scope. It is not limited in geography. The gospel is for every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. That's why the church does missions work, by the way. We don't believe that a person who's somewhere out there who is in some other religion is okay before God. They may be ignorant of the gospel, but that's why we need to get the good news of the gospel to them. I was in India, Nepal, Nepal in 2001. I met two men who have become pastors who both told me that they were in the, uh, either it was either Hindu or Buddhist temple and felt that they became possessed by multiple demons as they burned incense in the temple. And uh, they both gave witness to their transformation and being born again to Jesus Christ, but said one of them was describing being choked at night by some unseen presence. So they weren't okay in their religion. 
You know, we sometimes think, oh, why do we mess with people? Why do we, why do we go over there and try to change things? Because we want people to hear the everlasting gospel. It's for everyone. And the gospel is to be preached to all the nations. Imagine the world maybe at this time saying, if God would just open up the heavens and maybe an angel would fly around and tell us that the gospel is true, then we'd believe. I don't think so. How literally do we take this? Is this literally an angel flying in mid-heaven? Well, angels are going to be very involved in the last days. Jesus talks a lot about angels when he's describing the last days. The book of Revelation is mentioning many angels. Here's the message. He said with a loud voice, verse 7, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment, that is the day of the Lord, has come, you could translate this, is at hand, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. When this angel preaches the gospel, it's interesting, you don't hear him talk about the death on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the burial, the resurrection. What he does is he warns the world to fear God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, right? So when we have a healthy fear of the Lord, we will run to the foot of the cross. When we understand how holy God is and how we've broken his law, we'll understand our need for the gospel. And this angel's message is, fear God, give him glory, because the time of judgment has come and God is the creator of all things, and he's going to judge the world. Fearing God, giving him glory are important things, and it's, these are the things that humans don't want to do largely. They don't want to fear God and they don't want to give him glory. John MacArthur comments, refusing to give God glory is at the core of man's prideful rebellion, close quote. They refused to glorify him, Romans 1. And they exalted other things, animals and four-footed creatures, and they would not give God thanks or give him glory. This has been the story of man in his rebellion. All men, all women know there's a God. It's been written on the stars. It's written in the heavens and it's written in our hearts. We already know there's a God. We have to suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We just don't want to hear it. But the truth of the matter is we already know. And another angel, a second one followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. I don't think that this is ancient Babylon. I think Babylon becomes a symbol of the, the rebellious world and idolatry. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The word immorality there is pornea. I shared with the church on Sunday, I had listened to Ravi Zacharias Sunday morning, and he said he spoke in a multiple site venue where he was addressing college students uh, I believe, if I recall correctly, many of them were not Christians, but they're in the university or state college. And he addressed about 50,000 young people all at one time with multiple sites. And they got feedback. They got questionnaires and feedback from the students. And the two top things that the students were asking were these. One, does life have any meaning? And two, how do I overcome a pornography addiction? 50,000 university students after hearing probably one of the greatest apologists of our times. You know how they responded? Does life really matter? Does it have any meaning? 
and I'm addicted to pornography and I don't know how to overcome it. That'll tell you a little bit about where we're at. Now, the wine of her immorality, the Babylonian system is an anti-God system and one day that system will fall. One day it's going to be in rubble. But sin and deception can look good. It comes in sparkling packages and we all know how it works. Somebody once said, why is it that opportunity knocks only once and temptation bangs at the door constantly? (laughs) Doesn't it seem that way? Sin is always seemingly crouching at the door just waiting to jump or enter in if we just leave the door open a little bit of a crack. Babylon is about spiritual defection. It is an anti-God system. It is kumbaya. We are the world. All religions lead the same direction, don't they? No, they don't. Jesus said, I am the way to God. You can't have, folks, please hear me well. You can't have two religious systems with contradictory truth claims both be true. You can't have a religion teach that you live millions of times. Scientology, here's an example. You've probably lived billions of lives before and you're just going to keep living and living over again. These are forms of Eastern religion as well. And the Bible saying you live once and after this comes the judgment. Those are two contradictory religious truth claims. They both cannot be true. The Bible says you live once and then comes judgment. But Eastern religions say you live over and over and over again. I was in the sauna at the gym one day. And I met a man who was, uh, I think he was a Hindu. And we began to talk about faith. And I asked him what he thought about Jesus and so forth. And he said he believed that he had lived millions of lives and he'll live some more. And I said, what do you think you're going to come back next time? What do you think you're going to be? And he goes, maybe I'll be a flower. I said, how do, you, how do you produce good karma as a flower? Do you just have to open really wide? I mean, I'm sorry, but... By the way, karma is not a Christian concept. Just so you know. <laughs> Sowing and reaping is a Christian concept. Karma is a New Age Eastern concept. Now another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if, anybody, if anyone worships the beast, verse 9, and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he, that person who receives the mark, will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Anyone who takes the mark will drink, here's the language, the cup of God's wrath mixed, unmixed. That is, it will be the full dose of the wrath of God. Oh, here we go. Another preacher talking about the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Remember uh, Indiana Jones? When they show him a picture of the ark and the two you know, FBI agents. What is that? Fire, lightning, the path, the, the, the power of God, the wrath of God. Oh, come on. Come on. And then remember, didn't any of you go to Sunday school? Well, 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 well. <laughs> the Bible teaches 
That's salvation. Think about it. We ask, we, we, as Christians, we say we're saved from what? The wrath of God. And Jesus Christ drank a cup. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, what? Pass from me. I don't want to drink it. But not my will. Yours be done. You know what that cup was? It was the cup of God's wrath. It's pictured in the Bible as a cup that he drank. He drank it. He drank the dregs, if you will. He took the wrath at the cross. Why? Because he loves you. So this is how you avoid the wrath of God. You run and you take the mark of the Savior, 777. <laughs> and the smoke of their torment, those who go the other direction and take the mark of the beast, goes up for how long? Forever and ever. You might want to write down Isaiah 34, 9 and 10. Some of the imagery comes from um, this idea of um, Isaiah 34, Sodom and Gomorrah imagery there. They have no rest who take this mark. They can't rest middle of 11 day and night. They have no rest, those who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name have no rest. No rest. They think that they're taking the easy way out, but it's not the easy way out. They have no rest. Those who reject Jesus Christ, sadly, this is a picture of them. They have no rest. No true rest. Now here is the perseverance, the patient endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This situation, NIV, calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. The church is going to have to hang in there, especially if we go through uh, trouble, great tribulation. And I heard a voice from heaven 13 saying, right, blessed, that's the word makarios, it's joyful, blissful, speaks of fulfillment, satisfaction, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. The Holy Spirit adds yes, that they may rest from their labors. Now, the church, even if they're martyred, they rest, but the world, in verse 12, doesn't rest, for their deeds follow them. It may be a message here that even if Christians have to pay the ultimate price, they will rest in the presence of the Lord. Blessed are, blessed are living are the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will what? He will live. Death is not the end. Don't fear him who can kill your body. And after that, he has no power over you. Jesus said, you have a soul. You have a soul that's going to live on. So don't fear the things that they fear. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, 14, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Probably a description of Jesus from Daniel 7, 13. Having a golden crown, a diadema, on his head, and he had a sharp sickle in his hand. The sickle is used for cutting stalks of grain. So sometimes you, you see someone with a, a sickle or something like a machete, you know, doing the the cutting through the jungle. That's kind of what the idea here is. So he's got, he's on this white cloud. He's got the crown. He looks like Jesus the king and he's got a sickle in his hand and he's getting ready to reap. Jesus said these words in Mark 4, 26 through 29. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. 
He goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up and grows uh, how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus says, lift up your eyes. The fields are white unto harvest. These are the days of the harvest. These are the days. When, when your life is over, there'll be no more sharing the gospel with people. It won't be necessary anymore. These are the days of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, there are few. And every time I hear that verse, I look at myself and I ask myself, what am I doing? How am I involved in the harvest? And another angel came out of the temple, out of the presence of God, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. And he said, put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now back to the harvest imagery. The crop is ripe. It's the time to harvest the crop. You wait. You wait for the right season, the right amount of rain, the sunshine, the timing, and it's time to reap the crop, to bring in the harvest. And the uh, harvest is now ripe. It's ready to be reaped. Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Most commentators believe that the following verses are the reaping of a grain harvest, which pictures the reaping of believers. And uh, let's pick it up in verse 16. He who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. The reaping is bringing in the crop. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Now, in verse 16, the first reaping, I think most uh, commentators that I've read on this, is the bringing in of believers before the judgment of God. So the grain, the wheat, is brought into my barn. Before judgment can come, you're going to have believers rescued. I've described this as Jesus used the image of Noah in the ark. God shuts the door, then the judgment comes. The believer's protected. The ark is a type of Jesus. And then the flood of judgment comes. The story of Lot, the angels say, we can't destroy this place until you're out of here. They're literally pulled out of Sodom, then the judgment comes. So the first reaping seems to be believers. The wheat, the, not the tares, but the wheat brought into the barn. Another angel, a second reaping, comes out. He's also got a sharp sickle. He's an angel. Uh, we, we saw first the Son of Man, now we see an angel. And another, another angel who had the power over fire, fire and judgment are often connected, you could look at Revelation 8, 5, came out from the altar. He kept, called with a loud voice to him who, who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. We've all heard of the grapes of wrath. Well, here we got it. The grapes are ripe. The grapes are about to be brought in for the time of judgment. And the angel swung his sickle, 20, or excuse me, 19, to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, the result of the swinging of the angel's sickle is sobering. 
because these clusters from the vine of the earth are thrown into the great, great wine press of the wrath of God. Now, uh, a wine press, I don't know how else to describe it to you except for an old version of I Love Lucy. Anybody see that? All right. That shows you that I need to get out more. But anyway, and you remember that? They, they were in the, the big thing, whatever you call it, the basin. And doesn't that kind of gross you out that you've maybe partaken of some? I don't know, but anyway. But that's the way they do it. So they, they stomp on the grapes, and then there's a, a channel, and uh, the juice from the grape flows down, and it's captured, you know, like in a basin. And so there they go. But stepping on the grapes becomes an image of God and his wrath. And he is stomping, judging. There's the splattering of the grape juice, which is a very vivid picture of the splattering of blood. Joel 3, 13 through 15, write this down. It says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Joel 3, 13 through 15. When Jesus was in Gethsemane and he was praying, Luke says he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood to the ground. And he was in a place called Gethsemane. A Gethsemane is literally what is used for the smashing of olives. And when the olive gets smashed, what happens is it's, it's opened up, smashed, and olive oil then runs kind of with a similar idea from the olive, and it's caught in a basin below. Jesus was in a place, Gethsemane, which literally means the olive press. I want you to see this picture for a second. He was being pressed with the prospects of the cross. And he says, Father, three times he prays it. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And Luke says, and he was praying and blood, as it were, was dropping to the ground like, like sweat. Some people think it's symbolic. Some people think he literally went through something, something called hematidrosis where you're under so much pressure the tiny capillaries begin to burst under your skin and you begin to bleed out of your pores because you're under so much mental, emotional strain. Some of you can relate to what I'm saying right now. Jesus Christ in the garden had literally the olive press, the Gethsemane, literally what it means, falling on him. And he was feeling the weight of it. And he, and he would... He would literally fall down on his face to the ground. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he was being pressed. And if the language of Luke is literal, blood was falling to the ground. And you know why he was going through that? So you wouldn't have to be pressed. So the burden, the weight of your sin, the judgment of Almighty God, would fall on him instead of falling on you, that he would take the wrath, that he would be that smashed, precious olive for you and for me. That is the gospel. 
God did for you, for me, what we cannot do for ourselves. And he took the wrath of God at the cross. That's why it grew dark. That's why the earth shook when he was on the cross. He spilled his precious blood that judgment might pass over me and you. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. Now we go back to the unbeliever. And blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Now, some of you, um, you may have in your Bible 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia, by the way, as I've read on this, is approximately 184 miles. 184 miles is the exact distance from the top of Israel to the bottom border. 184 miles from Dan to Beersheba. Hmm. I don't know what all of that means, but up, blood up to the horse's bridle, you know, that would take a lot of people to die, right? But I think what it is saying is that this day is going to be a day where there's a lot of catastrophe. The day of the Lord is coming fierce and cruel. And the good news is if you belong to Christ, you're going to be singing in heaven. Harps, guitars. Yeah, yeah. Praise the Lord. But people on the earth who thought they were taking the easy way out, they're not going to get an easy way out. For our God is a consuming fire. And the Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But would you notice, before this day occurs, he even sends angels and says, the angels say, don't take that mark. He does miracles. Because God is not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. Now, we don't know if these things will happen in our lifetime But what we do know is that every day, people head into eternity, right? Every day, we have to decide who we want to live for and even what we're willing to die for. And Revelation 14 certainly captures that. But as a believer, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I want you to turn to Revelation 1.5, and I'm going to ask Shane to come on back up. Revelation 1.5 says these words. It says, From Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.5, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is, who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, we are grateful for your word. And this is certainly a a section that is uh, sobering, but also joyful and hopeful. And there will be a day when we will be counted. 
The Bible says there will be a day when you will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the people who say, Lord, Lord, and you say, I don't know you, and the people who will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you charge in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Lord, we're going to see that a lot of the judgment that takes place has these words. They, they killed the prophets. They, they killed your people. This is God's vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But thank you, Jesus, that you took that vengeance at the cross for us. And I just want to ask you, if you keep your head and heart bowed for a second, do you know Jesus? Have you settled that question? Is he your Savior, your Lord, your King? If you're not sure, please make sure right now. Something like this. Lord Jesus, prayed if it's you, come into my life. Thank you that you went to that cross and took the wrath from me. You didn't deserve it, but you did it. You were innocent. I'm guilty. But I'm going to put my trust in your finished work on the cross. Pray it if it's you. I believe you rose from the dead and defeated my mortal enemy, death itself. And I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to live for you. I want to know the power of your kingdom, the power of your resurrection, even the fellowship of your sufferings. Lord God, as people cry out to you, maybe some people are just doing some business. Maybe there's some rededications here. You know, Lord. But we just pray that our lives will be a testimony, a trophy of your grace as we live out our days and we live for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?